um, let's talk about exile destruction and this concept called cognitive dissonance. Okay? Anybody familiar with cognitive dissonance? Where's our social psychology books? Okay. Right. Recapping what's happened up to this point. Okay? Um, you have the Davidic dynasty, you have the, the you know uh, the split of the kingdom, twelve ten, uh, ten tribes in the north, three tribes, Israel and Judah. Israel gets destroyed by the Assyrians. Uh, Israel, uh, the Assyrians come to destroy Jerusalem, but they don't. Hezekiah survives. Jerusalem becomes this big mythological place where God's always going to protect it. No way. God, remember, uh, God promised David an eternal uh, throne. A descendant of David will always sit on the throne in Jerusalem. The temple's inviolable. Remember uh, Jeremiah criticizing him for saying things like, just because you say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of three times magic, doesn't make it so, right? There was this traditionalist belief that nothing could happen to Jerusalem. Okay? The Assyrians were repelled, and the Assyrians are ultimately conquered by another people called the Babylonians. Yes? Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was supposed to live for, you know, supposed to be there forever, eternal residence of God. Right? And a king will sit on the throne of David, a uh, son of David will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem forever. Okay. Neo Babylonians. So there was an uh, uh, old Assyrian Empire that was big, old Babylon, and then they went away. And now you've got the, these are, why well, I refer to the Assyrians in a biblical context, it's actually technically Neo Assyrians. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Carter. The Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures will take you through all of this stuff. You can study Akkadian, Sumerian, and all these old ancient languages, and you can talk about the Syrians and Babylonians. The other one to take, if you're going to take uh, cuneiform languages, is Dr. Bob England, E-N-G-O-U-N-D, uh, in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. If you like really, really old stuff, especially languages that no one can speak, um, that's the department for you. <laughs> Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. Okay. The Babylonians are going to conquer the Assyrians, and the Babylonians are even worse than the Assyrians. Okay. So we're going to talk about the rise of the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar. 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 Uh, and the fall of Jerusalem. This is what we're about to talk about here. Okay. So Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by this king of this nation. No one will be on the test. And you're going to know this date. If you, if you leave this class with any date in your head, you're going to know 586 BC. Okay. All right, let's get into it. Uh, we're going to see evidence of three exiles. We refer to it as the Babylonian exile, but it's actually three exiles, we think. And I'll show you evidence for that. Okay. I look forward. This is just an outline of what we're about to talk about. Okay, um, King Josiah, who we were just celebrating, um, gets killed, which isn't supposed to happen if you're a good king. Right? If you're a good king, you're supposed to be blessed and survive, and if you're an evil king, God kills you or has someone else come and kill you. And it really caused a problem when Josiah died in battle with uh, Pharaoh Necho. Okay. Um, so here you've got a Babylonian chronicle again. All this Judeo form uh, is um, obviously not Aramaic. 
Nebuchadnezzar comes to power. He defeats Assyria in 605 BC, right? And Egypt, he takes out Egypt as well. In 597, he besieges Judah and sets Zedekiah on the throne. So he's got a little puppet king there. But then he revolts, and Babylonians don't like it when you revolt against them. Why do you think Zedekiah would revolt, by the way? What's one of the reasons you might want to revolt against the guys that are even stronger than the Assyrians? You believe what? Jerusalem can't be conquered. Right? God's going to protect us. We have faith in the promise of God. So let's revolt against See, well, I'm a true believer. We'll revolt against the Babylonians. And then, of course, in 586, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes along and destroys the temple in Jerusalem and exiles all of the wealthy and elite establishment. The poor, the uneducated, he left behind. But anybody who could help them do business, anybody who had any networking, anybody who had any skill whatsoever, they uh, exiled. And we talked about this concept, right? This, how do you ethnically cleanse a place? How do you properly conquer a place, right? Either you kill the people, you rape the people to make more of yourself, to get rid of this pure ethnic folk, or you exile the people. And we have seen the atrocities of war to this very day with these three things. People killing other people, raping other people, using sex as a weapon, or exiling other people in order to claim a piece of land. It's wrong and it shouldn't be done, but it doesn't mean that it's not done. Okay. Let me show you the biblical accounts of these three exiles. Really quick, it's a lot of text, don't write it down. So let me show you the biblical account. In 2 Kings 24, 2 Kings 24, we'll just go through these very quickly. Yeah, this, I, I want to show you proof of everything I say. I want you to challenge everything I say. Remember we talked about that? But I also want to show you evidence of everything I say. Um, Jehoiakim um, uh, was 18 year old and he came to reign, uh, began to reign. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came up to Jerusalem and besieged the city. Jehoiakim realized he was beat, beaten, and so he gave himself up. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. He carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which King Solomon of Israel had made. He carried away all Jerusalem, all the officials, all the warriors, 10,000 captains, all the artisans, all the smiths. No one remained except the poorest people of the land. Right? You're only going to allow to live or worry about people who can do things for you or do things to hurt you. But the poor folks who didn't have any connections, any money, didn't, couldn't make weapons, could, he just left them there. And we'll learn later, he left them there so that they could be the slaves to dress the vines, basically, to, to work in the fields. Yeah? Before verse 14, it says, all this as the Lord had foretold. Yes. Um, all of the texts that we're going to read about are, uh, let, me, let me rephrase it, a lot of the texts we're going to read about are couched as prophecies. Okay. Basically, remember I said, uh, when, when you're dealing with the Bible and you're not dealing with objective text, you're dealing with a text that's trying to convince the reader of something. And throughout the Bible, they're always trying to convince the reader that God is real, that God is true, and that anything bad that happens um, is your fault, basically, or the people's fault. Basically, God never breaks his promises, which we're going to talk about in a second, because what? It sure looks like a promise of God was broken. 
So one of the things, and we'll talk about this in about 20 minutes, is if we're still in here in 20 minutes, uh, yeah, um, is this idea that, well, the only reason that God broke his promise is because you did something. Okay? So basically what you say is, see, this was foretold. Basically, one of the issues is, was this a prediction that later came true, or did something happen? And then they took a prophecy and put it in the mouth of some old guy, and then they say, no, 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 this was foretold. Kind of the I told you so thing, after the fact. And then how, how many of those, you know, do you have real prophecies, or do you have this, are all of them after the fact? And, no, we'll talk about that. Okay, so there was, a, there was an exile in, in 2 Kings 24. Then Zedekiah, the new king, was there, 21 years old, began to reign. Okay? And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I just took the city. I put you on the throne to do what I told you. Why are you rebelling against me? Okay, here we go. So Nebuchadnezzar comes this time with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works, yada, 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 yada. And they, they uh, took some more folks. So Nebuchadnezzar had to come back, and he didn't like having to come back. Okay, let me show you one more. In the fifth month of the seventh day, which was the 19th year, etc., etc., uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, stood out there, the captain of the bodyguard, son of the king. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all of the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. This is in the Bible, right? 2 Kings 25. They broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So not only did they burn the city to the ground, and not only did they destroy the temple, but they knocked down all the walls around Jerusalem. Why? So after they left, they couldn't take refuge in the city and do this again. They burnt the place to the ground. Okay? And carried into exile the rest of the people who were left behind earlier. And the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the population. 586 BC, something really bad happened. The temple of Solomon, the first temple of Solomon, was destroyed, burnt to the ground. All of Jerusalem was burnt to the ground, the walls were knocked down. This is what happened when they rebelled against Babylon. Okay. Now, nice historical fact, but that's a crisis of faith. Why? What's the verse? Why? Second Samuel 7. A promise was made that a king would always sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem forever, and that the house of the Lord would be the presence of God forever. And now both have been destroyed. So I ask you a question. Did God break his promise? And if he did, what do you do about that? What do you do when everything that you've been taught about faith, or everything that you've been thought, taught about how we came to be as a people, right, humans, uh, all of a sudden comes smack face to face with reality or experience that says everything to the contrary. What do you do when everything you've been taught about faith doesn't jive with the experience that you've had? What? Yeah. One of the things you can do is deny the experience. Right? Well, I know that it seems that um, uh, that this promise was broken. I know it looks like that, but I'm going to hold fast to my faith. That can't be real. That's not what happened. She didn't really lie to me. She didn't really break her promise. But she promised me, and I did not. So you deny the experience. Okay? 
I prayed and prayed that God would cure my daughter and my son and my brother, sister, mom, dad. And God answers prayers. And then they die, and you say, what? Well, it must be a part of God's plan. Or she must have died for a reason. Or she must have done something wrong. You begin to rationalize the experience in light of what you believe. You deny the experience. Or, one other option is what? You embrace the experience fully, and you say, I've been lied to all my life. The religion is false. God doesn't exist, or something like that. What do you do when everything that you've been taught runs up against your experience? Reality, fact. What do you do? This is what we mean by cognitive dissonance. Okay? You begin to attempt cognitive dissonance theory. You begin to reinterpret what you thought you understood to be a religion uh, in light of the new events. You try to explain it away. And that's exactly what we see about to happen in the Bible. So let's look at it. Jerusalem is destroyed. Arrowheads, things burnt to the ground. We call them burn layers, right? You're digging down through the dirt, dirt, you're doing archaeology, and all of a sudden you see a black layer of ash in your ball. Something bad happened right there. Everything burned to the ground. So we find, you know, the burnt house, we find layers of burnt things, right? Um, we see a decline in the population of Jerusalem. And I also want to come back and look at these, uh, what happens to text. Uh, at times of crisis. There are places in the text, in the biblical text, where we see um, uh, obvious examples of people coming back and changing the text. And I'll show you a few of those. Okay? In fact, let me show you one right now. Got this? Got this? Okay. In 2 Kings 23, we have an original conclusion of the reign of Josiah. In verse 24. This was probably written before the exile. Why? Because it looks clean and nifty, right? Moreover, Josiah put away all the mediums, the wizards, uh, teraphim, idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land. Remember, he cut down all those idols, right? So that he established the, word, established the words of the law that were written in the book that the high priest Hilkiah found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him, right? Who turned to the Lord with all his heart with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him, like him arise after. Amen and amen, all is good, but him. That's the original conclusion of the story of Josiah. And in the very next verse, we get this. Still, the Lord did not turn the fierceness uh, of his great wrath, by which his anger right, was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh, which was an ancestor, had provoked him. And the Lord said what? It's in yellow, so it's very important, right? I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. I will reject this city I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. And then we go on in verse 29 to read about Pharaoh Necho comes up and kills Josiah. Josiah dies in battle with, with, with Egypt. Now, how do we know that this was added after this? 
this was probably written prior to the, the Babylonian destruction, and that this was written after the Babylonian destruction. One of the ways you can tell the difference is um, uh, in vocabulary, grammar, language, style, right? Um, spelling, orthography is a fancy, fancy word, right? Um, and if you don't read Hebrew, you can't really see this. It's in English and it looks all smooth over. But if you were listening to a song, right? If you were listening to a song, and the beginning of it sounded like Celine Dion, right? And all of a sudden, about mid-song, it sounded like 50 Cent, right? <laughs> you would probably think to yourself, wait, wait a minute, something's going on here, right? Somebody, this, Celine Dion doesn't sound like 50 Cent, right? 50 Cent doesn't sound like Celine Dion. Somebody probably added a 50 Cent song to a, to a Celine Dion song. So that's one of the ways we can tell. But the other way is actually in the context. When before have we ever seen in the Bible that God's going to break his promise to Jerusalem? Promise to David. And yet here you have, thus says the Lord, I will remove Judah, I, I have, I'm going to reject this city. When has God ever said, I'm going to reject Jerusalem? So what are we probably dealing with here? It's probably an occasion, based on lots of things, that this was written after the fact. That in, in an effort to deal with this idea that what I believe, what I know, right, as my faith, as my religion, is now different from what we know as reality. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The Babylonians burned the city down. That there needed to be this effort of explaining why would God break his promise. And so after the fact, they begin to go back and write things add in conclusions. There's two conclusions to the book of Josiah. Remember, because then it picks back up. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the annals of the kings of Judah? Just like up here, right? Over and over, nobody's ever like him, right? Why do you have two conclusions? Probably because one was written early and one was written later. And why, why did they write a second conclusion? In an effort to explain why God broke his promise. And from here on out in this class, we're going to look at ways that this promise is reinterpreted. I guess you could argue, I think it's safe to say you can argue, that basically Judaism and Christianity and Islam from this point out are all attempts to reinterpret that original promise. Not just the promise to Abraham, that his children will occupy this land, but the promise to David, that God will reign in Jerusalem forever. And what we're going to see, at least in Judaism, is that it are attempts, multiple attempts, to reinterpret that promise. We have a question here, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people will say this to the day, to this day, right? Why, why is there strife in the Middle East, right? Yeah, I mean, just before it, right, everything we've ever heard up until that point is God's going to promise Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be there, the temple will be there, a king will be David. And it says that there was no king like Josiah before him, and there was no king like Josiah after him. And yet still, um, by the way, uh, God said he was going to reject Jerusalem. It just comes out of absolutely nowhere, which is why scholars think that this was added after the fact. It doesn't fit with anything. It's again like Pity Cent shows up in the middle of Celine Dion song and, and starts singing and rapping. And you think to yourself, I don't recall Celine Dion doing a duet 
it must have been somebody else, right? Maybe a boyfriend was making you a mixtape, right? Uh, any boyfriend who makes you a mixtape with Celine Dion is the same. <laughs> Go ahead and leave. All right. Um, let me show you a couple of charts, right? I don't just want to show you what I think. I want to show you some actual archaeological evidence. Um, here's a nice chart of the extent of what happened when the Babylonians showed up. Here you basically have the number of sites around Israel, Judah, uh, and the area of the sites. I mean, how much area does each of the sites occupy? It gets bigger, it gets bigger. Remember we talked about Jerusalem was kind of a backwater city. Nobody really cared about it. And David and Solomon were there, but it really wasn't a city, right? It was kind of like my little hometown. I always say I'm from Fresno. I'm actually from Madeira. The reason I say I'm from Fresno is Fresno is kind of a big place where everybody aspires to be. Okay? <laughs> when you grow up in Madeira, you just say, I can't wait to I can't wait to be so successful I can live in Fresno. <laughs> okay, so there's there's my props for Fresno. Um, basically, you can see that the, the country didn't become a big deal. Jerusalem wasn't until you start getting down here in Hezekiah. Even though it was a real city, it wasn't a real city, right? Until we get Hezekiah and Josiah, all of a sudden we don't find many sites, and the area of those sites are very small in the Babylonian period. Archaeological evidence here's a nice chart to show what happens when the Babylonians show up. Let me show you another one. Here's a chart of luxury items. Again, it wasn't a very wealthy city in the 10th century, David and Solomon. Right? Hezekiah getting a little better. Josiah getting to be a big deal because it survived. It's the last city standing, right? And then the Babylonians show up and they took away all the gold and silver and everything. So there's nothing. Got it? Here's your archaeological evidence or chart talking about the evidence. Now let's get back to our, our main question. What happens? What do you do when everything that you've been told suddenly doesn't fit with the reality or your lived experience? And you ask yourself this question, right? What did you do, those of you who, uh, let's, say, let's say for example, those of you who believe that the uh, humans were created by God in, on the sixth day of the sixth day of the creation, what did you do the first time you saw evidence in a textbook or in a science class that that might not be how we all got here? That maybe, just maybe, natural selection and evolution is how we got here, right? How did you react? How did you respond? Did you say, I knew it? Your parents were lying to me all this time. They were just telling me fairy stories, right? I knew it. That's just, that's just nonsense. And I hate religion. I, I reject it. Right? That's one. You accept, the, you accept the experience. You accept the data before you. And you reject what you've always been taught. But what else do we see people doing today? No, the science is fake. That's, those fossils were planted there. <laughs> well, there, there are people, there are truly people who say this, right? No, dinosaurs live right alongside man. <laughs> Noah got him on the ark somehow. And God drowned all the fish in the flood. I mean, there's people who will say this, right? There's, there are groups out there that take the six-day creation literally and deny all the science. So you've got two extremes, right? And then there are most of us in the middle somewhere going, okay, how do I reconcile these two things? I'm taught one thing as a part of my faith, and yet the reality, all the evidence seems to speak of something else. How do I rationalize these two events? How do I make any sense of this at all? So you've got creation evolution folks, and you've got 
people were trying to say, well, if you look at evolution, it matches up with creation, and let me show you some verses, and they try to reconcile things that appear to be irreconcilable. And as absurd as this sounds, this, this is a debate, and many of you may have written papers on it or, or read my blog. There's, a, there's an issue of a professor that resigned recently um, from a confessional school, an evangelical seminary, because he basically said Christians need to learn to accept the fact that we evolved. And that the two different creation stories we have at the beginning of Genesis 1 um, are just that, stories. A pre-scientific attempt to explain where we came from. Now we have data, now we know that that's not how we came from. And of course he was, he resigned from the school because it's a religious school and you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say it what the Bible says. This, this, these aren't imaginary things going on. These are battles that are being fought today. Now, we're gonna argue about creation and evolution this much later. Think about what people were having to deal with when everything they've been told is that Jerusalem is the city of God and a viable city, right? A city that can't be destroyed. This is God's promise to David, God's promise to Jerusalem, and now it's gone. What do you do? What do you do when everything that you've learned, everything that you've been taught, is now poof? What happened to the Davidic dynasty? Yes, they did keep records of the kings, and the kings went into exile. So even if you want to argue, well, the Davidic dynasty didn't really die out, they were just in exile, you're still not keeping the promise that a, a member of the throne of David will be on the throne in Jerusalem. The temple, right? Because that was the promise. There will always be a king, a son of David, on the throne in Jerusalem. Right? And the temple's gone. It's, in, it's supposed to be the, the residence of God. And now it's gone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, we don't know. They, there are attempts in the Bible. The question is, when the monarchy is restored, when they come back from exile, is it the same line of David? Um, if it is, then that, and, and, and there's a lot of question about that. There's an attempt to try to show that it's still the line of David. But the, apparently it's gone, because by the time Herod the Great is the king of the Jews on the throne, he's not on the line of David, right? He's Indian, he's, he's half Jewish. He's only half Jewish. So promise is broken. We can try to we can try to dance around it. Right? The promise is broken. There is no longer a, a son of David on the throne, at least a physical son of David. The Christians will try something else. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. And they're going to try to do something else to try to reinterpret this promise that a son of David will always be on the throne. Okay? But we're not there yet, so hold on to that thought. Uh, what happened to the land? The land was destroyed. The people were exiled. And this is the end of the temple. Now, let's talk just for a second about this concept of the temple's gone. Remember, let me show you a slide. Uh, I want to come back to this. Hold on. Hold on. I want to come back to this now. I'm out of order. I want, I want to do this. So I want to do this right now while I'm thinking about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do people do when they respond to tragedy? Um, they sing the blues. Specifically, they write songs. And any of you like me who love Damien Rice, you may know who Damien Rice is? I love Damien Rice. I love Damien Rice. I go to see him every time he comes to town. Uh, no one else can make, write a song that just makes me want to cry like Damien Rice. They just, just sad and pathetic, and he writes sad songs. I just go, yeah, that's 
<laughs> but he didn't invent this concept, right? The blues. Anybody like really good blues? Really, really good blues. And you have to have your heart broken in order to understand it. Well, these guys understood it. And they wrote things down. And some of these things are called lamentations. So let me give you a sample of uh, one of the, uh, uh, Lamentation 1 from the Book of Lamentations in the Bible. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. How like a widow she has become, that she was great among the nations, that she was a princess among the provinces, and has become a vassal, a servant. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with her, and they have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. She lives now among the nations, finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the festivals. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her young girls grieve, her lot is bitter. Her foes have become the masters, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. They wrote a sad song. And notice in their sad song, they laid the blame for the destruction of Jerusalem, not at God's feet for breaking his promise, but at whose feet? The transgressions of the people. And if we go back and read Deuteronomy, as I said earlier, which most scholars think was either written during or at least edited during the exile and after the exile, we see that this over and over again. You will be punished if you break the law. And that's how Judaism explains the breaking of the, the, the apparent breaking of the promise of God to his people. And that is, the promise was always conditional. Even though in 2 Samuel 7, we see no conditions. Because of my servant David, I will, there will always be a son of David on the throne. There were no conditions. But by the time we read Deuteronomy, we see all kinds of conditions. If you keep my commandments, if you don't bow down and worship other idols, if you keep the law, then I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay. So that's one of the ways you get around it, is you say, now there was conditions on the promise. And we, as a people, broke the law, so God was justified in breaking his promise. That's what we see. Look at another one here. I can't. I don't have time to read them all. Psalm 79, right? O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Go read Psalm 79. Okay? That's a good song. I don't have time to read it now. Let me show you another one that's a little bit more fun. Okay? It's sad, but at the end it's fun. By the rivers of Babylon, this is Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down, and there we wept, and we remembered Zion, right? All, on the willows, uh, there we hung our hearts. And there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth. Sing us one of those songs of Zion. They're making fun of them, right? The people who destroyed them said, now go ahead and sing one of those great songs of Zion. We hear you talk about the, the glory of Zion, right? They're teasing it. Everybody's talking smack in the ancient world, right? How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then you get a very classic verse. Hang with me for one more minute. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, my right hand is basically what it says. May I cut off my right hand. May my right hand become unusable if I forget you, O Jerusalem, right? Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Let me go mute, essentially, if I do not remember you. 
right? Remember, O Lord, and on, 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 and look at that verse 8 and 9. O daughter Babylon, you devastated, right? Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. And here's something that you don't get in Damien Rice songs, right? A little bit of revenge at the end, okay? Happy they shall be who take your little children and dash them against the rocks. <laughs> right? So we lament Jerusalem, but we also want some revenge. So anybody who comes to wipe you guys out, we're going to praise. Okay? So I want you to be thinking about this. We'll come back, and it's a very short lecture on Tuesday. What do you do when everything that you've been taught about your faith runs dead in to reality? Have a good week.